Well, good morning again. Oh, come on. I mean, I know I was up here already, and the anticipation, the excitement has already been let out of the room since you already saw me up here. But can you just, like, make me feel better about myself? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, if you know me, I am one who lacks self-confidence. And so I'm shy and tender and soft and afraid of crowds and loud noises. And so those are all lies, which is a great way to start a sermon. Hey, I'm glad you're here. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are working through the book of Matthew. And we're just going to get it right into it. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 9 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible perfectly good. You probably have a phone. And what you should do with that phone is you should go to mymcc.info, and there's a spot right at the top that says sermon notes, and you can follow along with all the passages there. mymcc.info, mymcc.info. You can go there, and you can follow along. And if you're a note taker, you can take notes, and you can save them for later, and you can go back and digest all the brilliance that you're about to hear, okay? I'm kidding. Here we go, Matthew 9. Matthew 9 is where we're at. Now, today, um, I, it might be generous to say that we're working through the book of Matthew because today we're actually looking at the same story for the third week in a row, okay? But I promise after today, we're gonna leave this story and we're gonna move on. But this story is a pivot in Jesus' ministry. This story actually, in many regards, begins the path to his execution later on the cross. That, this, that what we see in this story we're going to talk about today is the beginning of the offense to the establishment, to the religious leaders of the day, to, to the Roman government of the day that eventually gets them crucified. It starts right here. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, Matthew 9, verse 1, it says this. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own town, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. This fellow speaks against God. This fellow mocks the nature of God. That's what they're saying here. This fellow blasphemes. Now, despite what you might have heard on Facebook or YouTube or a TED Talk or the History Channel, all of which I love and have nothing against any of them, I think they're great resources, Jesus unequivocally, let's start here, this is important for us to understand, this is what everything pivots on, Jesus unequivocally, without question, claims to be God. Now, now if, you, if, you, if you looked at this text, you may not see it in these three verses where Jesus is claiming unequivocally without question to be God himself. But if you were a first century Jew, if you understood first century Palestine and the Roman influence and Greek influence and Jewish history over the last 400 years of silence where they'd been desperately waiting for, for the Messiah, they'd been waiting for a prophet, when Jesus says these words, it changes everything about the ministries a part of. Before that, he's saying great things. He's saying stuff, right? He says this before that. He says, um, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, you know who else says that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, that, that's, that's not unique. That's not amazing. That's not world changing. That doesn't tilt the whole understanding of the universe. But these words that Jesus says right here change it all. 
Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, the problem begins with the fact that we, is that, is that uh, the audience that Jesus is talking to actually has an understanding of how sins can be forgiven. The, the language that's often used in the Bible when it's talking about sins and forgiveness is the language of debt. So, so, so let me say it this way. If, if I said to you, let me explain it this way. If I said to you, right, um, that is the average American household, you have $16,601 in credit card debt. Okay? As the average American household, you have $16,601 in debt. Okay? In credit card debt alone. So if I said to you, hey, don't pay your credit card. Just don't do it. Right? This month, don't waste your money. Don't send it in. Right? Either you're just going to totally disregard me because I'm a loon and crazy. Right? Or how is the only way that I have the ability to actually tell you that and for it to be true? The only way is, is two options. I could either be the CEO of a major credit card company, right, that apparently you owe $16,601 to, and I have the ability to change the rules, or I've paid off your $16,601 in debt, right? That's the only way. And you see, Jews in Jesus' day, in their culture, they had an understanding of how you could pay off debt. Because despite what you may think, um, the Old Testament actually does teach, it's called the Mosaic Covenant, it's the Old Covenant, it does teach that there is a way for them to pay off the debt that they've incurred. The the Bible talks about it this way. Um, Jared, Jared Dumond, you back there? You want to come up here? I see Chris Resch made a run for it. First service, I made Chris Resch come up here. As surprisingly, he's not back there anymore. <laughs> Chris, you, uh, Jared, uh, thank you for not running away. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Here, I, I got some money, okay? Do you like money? It's not, it's not wrong to say in church. It's okay. We can say we, we, we're honest, right? We like money. I got money, okay? Okay? I got, I got, I got money right here, okay? You see that? I, I did my math better this time. That's $52. Okay? Okay, fifty dollars right there. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. You you wanna you wanna take some of my money? I know you do, don't lie, we're in church. Okay? Here, you, you take some of my money. Oh, you're not quite as greedy as Chris. First service, Chris just went like this. <laughs> okay? You can put it in your pocket. Okay? Now, Chris took my money. Right, didn't he? Did you guys all see that? You guys better have seen it because you're my witnesses here. Okay? Okay, Chris took my money. He took $45. You guys remember that? Oh, Jared. My bad. Maybe that's why you guys aren't agreeing with me. Jared took my money. Took $45, right, Jared? I took 30 Oh, okay, okay. So, Jared took $30. Okay? Jared owes me $30, doesn't he? I need your help here to agree with me because otherwise I'm out 30 bucks. I told my wife I'd bring the money home, okay? Please tell me he owes me 30 bucks, right? Okay, okay, he owes me 30 bucks, okay? Okay, so he owes me money. Now the Bible talks about our relationship with one another and our relationship with God in this way. It uses the terminology of debt almost most often than anything else that we incur at debt, that when we violate somebody's dignity, when we violate somebody's safety, when we violate something about who a person is or their nature as an image bearer of God, when we take something, either material or, or not material, when we take something from them, we are incurring a debt against them. Jared's incurring a debt against me when he robs me 
of something. This is the language that the Bible uses. And so the, the, the sorry, yeah, did I say Jared this time? Good, okay. So the, the Bible uses this language of debt that we incur with one another. It also uses the language of debt in relation to God, that we incur a debt. Here, let me read you some verses. Um, in Malachi 3.8, it says this. It's talking about us robbing God of resources. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, right? Stealing from me in debt. But you say, how have we robbed God in tithes and offerings? Jeremiah 7, it talks about robbing God in worship, in, in giving him what he's due, in the praise, in the humility, in, 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 the, in the bowed knee before him. Jeremiah 7, it says this. But just look at what is happening. You put trust in worthless lies. You steal and murder. You lie in court and are unfaithful in marriage. You worship idols and offer incense to Baal when these gods have done nothing for you. And then you come into my temple and worship me. Do you think I will protect you so that you can go on sinning? You are thieves. You've robbed me, right? You've made my temple a hideout, but I've seen everything you have done. Isaiah 61 talks about us robbing from one another. He says, for I, the Lord, love justice, love things to be right the way that they were intended to be, and I hate robbery and wrongdoing. The opposite of justice is robbery in God's eyes, that we're robbing. When we refuse to give justice to someone else, we're robbing them of something. This is the language that the Bible uses to talk about this debt that we incur. Now, the Bible does give a solution for it, right? In, in interpersonal relationships between Jared and I, Jared robbed me of $55, okay? And so Jared owes me, oh, bummer. I was hoping. Jared owes me. The Bible says this, actually, the Bible says that you owe me a fifth more than you stole from me. So I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There you go. You can just put that, okay? Okay, so Jared owes me this money back. The Bible actually gives, so th thank you, Jared. Thank you for not robbing me. Thank you for giving me back. Thank you. You can go sit down, okay? Yeah. Yeah, applaud for Jared because you might be the next one up here. So um, uh, the Bible talks about the, the, this relationship we have that we're robbed, and you know what that feels like, right? You've had someone rob your dignity, Maybe someone's robbed your time, your reputation, the way they talk about you. They're stealing something from you. It's the great offense in marriage is that we're robbing from one another. It's what causes all this tension. We're robbing trust from one another, robbing innocence from one another. And the Bible gives a way that we make that right. But then the Bible also says that we rob from God. And the Bible does actually give a path in the Old Testament. In Jesus' day, there was a path to make right the debt we incurred from God. So if we, if we stole from God, the Bible would say this, you stole from me, you robbed from me, you're thieves, you've, you've stolen my honor, you've stolen worship, you've stolen my resources, whatever they are. And, and there's a right way to do that. And the way that you do it is you go to Jerusalem, you go to the temple or in, initially to the tabernacle and you bring from your wealth because you owe God, you have a debt, right? This is the language that it's using. You have a debt and you take from your resources to pay off your debt. That's what's going on here. You, you come in Jesus's day, most people would have traveled to Jerusalem so they wouldn't have brought animals with them. They probably would have bought an animal in the, in the courtyard outside of the temple itself. 
but you come and you take from your resources and you buy a lamb or, or a goat, or if you're really poor, you might buy a dove or a pigeon, and, and you, you buy these things and you take them to the priest and you say, this is for my debt that I've incurred against God. I've blasphemed his name, I've robbed tithes and offerings from him, I've robbed worship from him, I've worshiped other gods, I've pursued other things above him, I've loved things other than him, whatever the thing was. I've, I've, I've dishonored his image bearers in the ways that I've acted, whatever the things were, and I've robbed from him, and so I need to pay my debt back to him to make things right. In Jesus' day, this was a right understanding of, of our relationship with God, that we rob from him and then we are responsible to pay him back. But he, here's the problem. Here's what gets Jesus crucified. Do you, you see what Jesus just said? Do you have your Bibles? Here, here's what Jesus said. Matthew 9. Matthew 9, it says this. Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son. Go get your offering and go repay your debt in the temple. No, no, it doesn't, it doesn't say that. It says this, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt is paid. The problem isn't actually really that Jesus forgives sins because priests could forgive sins. The priests as mediators for God, when you went to the temple and you offered your sacrifice, um, they would take the sacrifice. And if you've got a lamb that you, you're offering, right, that's kind of the iconic thing. But most people, lambs were very expensive. They had a real heavy weight of understanding of their sin because lambs were expensive. I mean, that was to take an animal that was unblemished at the beginning of its life and offer it in a way that it produced no fruit for the rest of the life. It couldn't have any offspring. It never made any wool for you. It was, it was just potential that you give to God and say, not only this lamb, but all the potential of the future I give up to repay my debt. And they would take these lambs and they would sacrifice them. And, and Josephus, he's a Jewish historian, he said that um, on, the, on, the, on um, certain days that the sacrifices would be so many that the ditches in Jerusalem would all run red with blood, right? This was the weight of the sin of the people. And they would, they would taste it. I mean, you know that like iron taste, smell you've, you get from blood, you would taste the blood in the air in Jerusalem on those days. You would see, you would hold this thing that was paying the debt for the sins, for the debt that you'd incurred. You would see it lose its life and be sacrificed to God. And then the priest would come to you and he'd say something to you to the effect of, your sins are forgiven. Your debt has been paid. You've been made right with God. There was a path for forgiveness. The problem, the thing that got Jesus crucified was that he redefined the path to forgiveness. Because you see, here's one of the really profound things about the, this, this paralytic guy, and I think it's why Jesus uses the paralytic to make this point. The paralytic did so little, he didn't even walk to Jesus. Jesus, I mean, that's the nature of being paralyzed. He didn't even pick himself up and go, oh, I need Jesus. I need a savior. I'm going to carry myself to the foot of Jesus and plead and ask that maybe he'd forgive me of my debt. He doesn't even do that. Other guys have to carry him to the foot of Jesus and lay him there. And, and with no effort, with nothing that he's done, nothing is sufficient for the debt that he's incurred. Jesus simply says these words, your sins are forgiven. It's the words that tilt the whole world. It's, it's the words that, that, 
that struggle to find the paradigm to fit in. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt is paid. That's what ultimately gets Jesus crucified because, as the Bible tells us, there is only one who can determine how sins are forgiven, and that's God himself. That's God himself. Isaiah, Isaiah, um, Isaiah 43, 25 says this, I, even I, this being God, am the one and only who wipes out transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 1 John 2, 2 says this, he died in our place to take away our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the people. And in fact, later in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 20, verse 28, he says this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hear the words, debt, debt. To give his life in place of our debt, The thing that gets Jesus crucified is he claims to be the path for payment for your debt. That every single one of us has incurred a debt before God, and we cannot look at the words of Jesus at the text of Scripture with any sort of intellectual honesty and not understand that Jesus himself declares and believes himself to be God who has the ability to do such things. This this truth is what sets apart the Christian faith from all others. You see, what I find so saddening is that I think that many of us are actually just living in in like a 21st century version of the Mosaic Covenant, of the Old Covenant. That many of us believe that what means following Jesus is just trying to figure out ways to pay off our debt. That we go to church, that we serve, that we give some money sometimes, that we, that we love on people, that we're generous with what we have, that we read our Bible, and that these are all ways that we're paying penance to pay back God for the debt that we've incurred. But the scripture tells us that you can't. You can't. That you cannot sufficient, and, and what it leads to is all of us are just exhausted and tired and feel guilty for the things we're engaging in and feel regret for the things that we did in the past. Because we constantly carry this weight of feeling like we need to earn it back and convince God that we're worthy of being loved and that we're deserving of being called sons and daughters. But Jesus says these words, child, your sins are forgiven. Not by an inkling of effort of the paralytic, but fully by the power of God, Jesus declares that through grace, through his gift, through his perfect sacrifice. It says in Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says, but when, the, when this priest, being Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I love what one preacher said. He said this, he said, he sat because he had finished. That what Jesus did on the cross was finished, complete, for all times, and he offers you this gift of forgiveness, of grace, to cease your striving to convince God that you're worthy. In fact, Isaiah, I don't have it in your notes, but Isaiah has this really great passage. You maybe have heard it before, and it says that all of your righteous efforts are as filthy rags before him. That all of your effort to try and convince them that you've paid back your debt is as nasty, disgusting, bloody rags before him. But he offers you this morning grace. 
come, sit at my feet, be my son, my daughter. At my expense, your debt is paid. Now, here's the really important, awkward part of this story that we have to come to grips with. Is this leaves us with uh, just three possibilities about Jesus. There's um, C.S. Lewis popularized this idea, but it actually initially was formulated by a guy, a Scottish preacher named Rabbi John Duncan. Isn't that a, like a great name? Rabbi John Duncan. That dude just sounds like a pioneer preacher, and he's Scottish. Can you, uh, wouldn't that be awesome to have a Scottish accent and, and then just like on fire preacher? He, he says this, He wrote this um, in a book that I'm not going to try and attempt the name because I'll butcher it. But he wrote in 1859, he said this. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or was himself diluted and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. There is no getting out of this trilemma. You see, the words of Jesus that we see in Matthew 9 have led led generation after generation to ask the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who can forgive sins? Who is this Jesus with the very word wipes away the debt we've incurred against God? And, and, And this rabbi, John Duncan, formulates this idea called the trilemma, and he says he's got to be three things. He's got to be one of three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. C.S. Lewis more famously wrote later um, in Mere Christianity, he he said this. uh, (laughs) I just love the way C.S. Lewis writes. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone, anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut up, you can, sh- you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and claim him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his, about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You see, this is the great question of our faith, is who is Jesus? Who is he? Jesus leaves you three options. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Now, now here's where the rubber really meets the road. If Jesus is Lord, (laughs) nothing else matters. If Jesus is Lord, then we must truly believe that the words of life are held in these pages. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, your opinion doesn't matter. Not in England. If Jesus is Lord, well, I don't really like, I think think that's kind of old-fashioned or archaic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter an inkling if Jesus is Lord. 
If Jesus is Lord, the words he speaks are life and their freedom and there are hope. If he is anything else, he is not worthy of being followed. This idea that Jesus was like a great teacher and a friend, you can kind of like jive with him and hang with him and like walk with him. And, and uh, it kind of pushes me funny on this thing. And I don't really want to like, uh, I don't really want to deal with this part of my life with him. It's so foreign to the scriptures. If Jesus is Lord, he is worthy of everything in you. And our only right response is to bow in submission to who he is. That's your question today. Is this Jesus who declares forgiveness through him, who declares life because of him? Is he Lord or is he something else? Because you have the choice to either follow him as Lord and to find grace and mercy and freedom and forgiveness and a future and life in this Lord who loved us so much that it says that while we were yet sinners, while we were rebellious, while we were enemies, while we were in debt up to our ears and could find no way out, that he came after us. That he gave himself in our place that we might have life, that we might be called sons and daughters of the king. Or you can choose to continue to try and convince this God that you are deserving and worthy of being loved and forever be shamed and alone and, and full of regret and fear. You choose. Who is Jesus? I so desperately, I so desperately want you to hear the words of Jesus this morning. I wish, I pray this morning that you hear the words of Jesus as that paralyzed man did. As Jesus stat, stood over the paralyzed man and he said these words, I wish he would say these to you, take courage, my child. Take courage, my son. Take courage, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Get up, pick up your mat, and come home. Come home to the Father, for you are my dearly loved child.